Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. Good morning. I am Janae Sharp, and I'm sitting down with Sachin Jane. Is that okay to call you that? Should I call you Dr. Jane? No, Sachin Jane is good. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about innovation, specifically if healthcare innovation is real, how how it's progressed in the past few years, and and if it's in a bubble. We hear about it a lot in this space, so I wanted to hear your perspective. Well, you know, I I believe that we have a healthcare innovation bubble. I think we have kind of the two different layers is what I kind of call them. One is, you know, kind of the reality layer. And then I would say, then there's like the cloud layer above the reality layer. And I think most of what people call, you know, innovation healthcare resides within the cloud layer. And most of where healthcare is delivered is the reality layer. And I think it's always sobering for people who are working on the innovation side of healthcare to actually seek it or need it. And then they realize how messed up it really is. And I think one of the, one of the big problems is healthcare is really a heavily networked delivery model, meaning there are, you know, kind of strong ties between different unrelated entities, weak ties between unrelated entities. And you might be able to change one part of the equation, but then you almost always have to escape and go into some other part of the equation, which may be, you know, kind of stuck in a legacy world. And so I think that is the reason why healthcare innovation is as incremental and as modest as it, as it, as it is. Yes. I, I think it's interesting what you were talking about when you, when you try to go and innovate for a specific problem, how have you how have you done that in the past? How do you select your problems? How do you, you know, because there are tons of things to work on. So how do you focus on one thing? I think you got to look at the biggest pain points in your organization. So every organization I've been a part of, you know, there's the stuff people like talking about. Um, and then there's the actual real world problems. And, you know, I, I'll just talk about some failures before I talk about some successes, because I think the failures are far more instructive. I joined Merck as its chief medical information and innovation officer, you know, in 2012. And um, I was essentially hired to solve a problem that the organization didn't really have. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, Merck had a lot of, you know, I think things it needed to do and improve its digital capabilities was probably somewhere in, you know, the bottom 50 of, of all of the problems that the organization needed to solve at that particular moment in time. And so, you know, you create almost a target on yourself when you, you know, come into an organization and you're focusing on kind of a set of problems that most people are, feel are non-core to the real problems. And so I think a big part of what one has to do when they're leading in an organization is choose the right set of problems to attack and um, now I'll, I'll, if you'll let me, I'll share some success stories. I mean, we, um, when I was at Caremore, we had identified member transportation as being a huge issue for us uh, in that we were eager to provide our members transportation, but many of the transportation vendors that we worked with 
didn't do a very good job delivering our members to their appointments on time. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were the first uh, you know, health plan entity in the country to actually partner with Lyft or Uber. And we were able to dramatically improve service times as well as reduce costs because it was a problem that was widely recognized in the organization. Similarly, you know, we built some of the first clinical interventions in the social isolation space when I was at Caremore. And again, it was um, something that people got excited about and were galvanized by because it was a problem they were seeing every single day in their clinical practice. And so, you know, building a friendly caller and friendly visitor program to address the needs of lonely older adults just made sense to people because, again, it was a problem they were experiencing and seeing on behalf of their patients every single day for which we had no solution. Now think about you know, all of the innovation, so-called innovation and digital startups that are kind of emerging in the healthcare industry. Many of them are solving problems that we don't really see as top of mind or top of issue problems. Now that sometimes is an issue is related to problem definition and whether we've done enough work to actually build the case around whether something is a problem or not. But if you're trying to lead change in an organization, you gotta go to where the problems are, you know, Jesse James said, you know, he robbed banks because that's where the money was. If you want to be a change leader in healthcare, you have to go to where the problems are to actually, you know, create real change. I wondered about that too. Like with our, with things that I've worked on, um, sometimes people aren't ready. Like we came in to this, uh, into healthcare talking about physician mental health, you know, two years before anyone seemed to care. And, um, I'm interested in that idea that you go where the problems are or like where, where people identify that, but, but our frame of reference as individuals isn't always like spot on. Like, (laughs) well, yeah. And and, and I think that's, so I think it's really important for someone who wants to be a change leader in healthcare to put themselves in a bucket. Am I solving a problem that everyone recognizes or am I someone who needs to now build the case for solving the problem? I know you've done amazing work in physician burnout and are now kind of filling a huge need that people have identified coming out of the pandemic. I had a similar experience working on the, on the issue of racism towards uh, healthcare providers, which when I first published about it in you know, 2013 in the Annals of Internal Medicine, first of all, had received rejections from the New England Journal and JAMA because they said, you know, either they didn't like the way I wrote about it or they didn't really see it as a problem. Um, you know, fast forward, you know, nine years, and I think everyone recognizes that racism towards healthcare professionals is both, you know, an issue as well as, you know, uh, an abomination, frankly, that something that we need to correct. And so, again, you just have to make sure you know what phase of problem solving you're in. Are you in the build a story phase of problem solving, or are you in build a solution phase of problem solving, which I think are are two, frankly, very different phases and have different playbooks, uh, you know, assigned to them. You know, I was a political science undergraduate, and there's a great literature on this stuff, actually, um, you know, on problem definition. You know, scholars like John Kingdon and Deborah Stone, you know, wrote about, you know, kind of the nature of how problems are both defined as well as solved. And, you know, the truth, the story is, is that how you define a problem ultimately influences how you solve a problem. And so those of us who want to create change have to really be thoughtful about how a problem is defined because how that problem is defined ultimately influences, you know, how it actually gets solved. Yes. And, and the definitions both for racism against um, physicians and providers and against mental health, like 
those definitions have are drastically different now than they were when you started. You did it before it was popular. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, when when people are coming to innovation or see a problem, um, do you feel like there are, there are tenants they should follow or a specific? I don't know, like a code. Like it sounds like you have like a very solid process. And I'm going to copy it, and I'm going to have everyone else copy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it starts with really not focusing a ton on who gets credit. I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. You know, a lot of times innovation is code for, um, I want credit for leading change in an organization. And I think if you're actually interested in the credit, there's one set of playbooks that you have to operate under. If you're interested in um, actually creating the change, then you have to make it everyone's work and you have to make it everyone's problem, which in some case means putting yourself some, you know, in the background a little bit. And oftentimes organizing others to, to lead change as opposed to you being the person who's who's driving the change yourself. And so, you know, I think about the old adage, you know, if you want to go slow, um, do it alone. If you want to go fast, do it with others. I mean, you, you really have to kind of, I think, find a way to like do it with others. I think that's an important part of an organization. A lot of people, you know, shy away from this because they say, I don't want to really get involved in organizational politics, but you have organizational politics as soon as you have more than one person in an organization. And so, you just have to be really, really thoughtful about getting getting that piece of it right. I think you know the other piece of it is is making sure that there's a real business model and that it aligns to the business model that you're operating in, and it has to be material in the broader sense of the organization that you're operating in. So, if, so Janae, if you you know let's take burnout for a second. If you said, you know, let's solve burnout for burnout's sake, you know, you might get a little bit of what we've gotten, which is yoga classes, you know, seminars you know, issues, uh, you know, meetings about the topic, and you might spend five years doing that. If you said burnout was a driver of whether we can actually operate our organization, that burnout actually ties to nurses, for example, <laughs> you know, bur burnout ties to turnover, turnover turns to productivity, productivity loss leads to lost revenue. All of a sudden, you know, there's a there's a different story around it. So I think it's, again, building a case that ties to the thing that's important for you know, the top level leadership of an organization. And then I think you know, there's also just getting comfortable with a lot of trial and error mm -hmm. and recognizing the difference between healthy persistence and insanity. And, you know, and so, again, you, we have to be willing to kind of change our playbook you know, from time to time. And oftentimes we're not. Right. And so I think some of oh, there well, are some zealots. I might be one of them a little bit. It's true. <laughs> I'm like, it's no, true. We'll, and, and, we'll change the system to make it work. <laughs> and, but but a healthy dose of self-reflection on on what is needed in a particular situation to to drive change, to lead change, I think is is super important. And um, having a group of external advisors who can you know potentially even help help you see your own blind spots is right. is very, very important. And I'm I'm always kind of leaning on my mentors, friends, my mentees from time to time um, to just get different perspective on on what I'm seeing play out, you know, organizationally or industry-wide. Yeah, being a leader who listens has a greater um, impact on your effectiveness. I wanted to, you should get credit though, because you have done innovation and done work in the equity space now. You're continuing that work. And so I wanted to ask you, 
ask you a little bit about that. Like when it comes to equity or accessibility, how, how did you, you know, why don't you tell us about what you've done and, and how that yeah. process worked? Well, we, you know, we focused on a big problem in our organization, which was different rates of medication adherence between our African-American Latinx members and our Caucasian members. And, you know, we wanted to create change. And, you know, we suffer from all the issues that most healthcare organizations have. You know, we've got a long list of problems. You know, SCAN has a long list of issues that we want to address on behalf of our members. And, you know, healthcare disparities is but one of a number of different issues. So, in order to really create focus around it, we actually did what any rational group of people would do, which is we put our money where our mouth is. We actually tied our annual incentive bonuses to whether we were actually able to close the gap. And I can tell you, you know, we spent the first six months of last year thinking that we were on the right track. And then when we looked at the data, we realized like, oh no, like we are actually not, we're at risk of not closing this gap. And in fact, not at, at risk of not achieving a 10% portion of our, our annual bonus. And so that became very real, very fast for our teams. And then, you know, all the kind of normal issues that organizations face, inadequate resourcing, you know, organizational sludge and politics kind of all went out the window because it was, we were all unified by, both by this common purpose and, you know, doing the right thing for the people that we serve, but also um, the fact that, you know, we had a, our own skin in the game as far as actually solving this problem. And, you know, we saw as a result, um, real movement, and we were able to actually close the gap by about 35%. So it was very, very exciting. That's good. Congratulations. Thank you very um, much. Thank you. What do you think led to that? Do you feel like organizations can create that inflection point where they sort of, you know, throw out their ego and start getting to work? Yeah, I think it requires more leadership in, in healthcare organizations, Janae. And I think we have a lot of people who think of themselves as leaders in healthcare who are actually administrators. And they are you know, people who kind of organize groups of people to do things. But sometimes organizing people to do things also requires an element of revolutionary zeal. And it also requires a little bit of courage. And I sometimes have this question as I sit on, in different boardrooms you know, that I'm a part of. And I think, you know, would a Gandhi of Martin Luther King have actually sat on a board? And if they did sit on a board, what would they look like? What would their conduct look like? And I'm sure they wouldn't be going along to get along. And I think a lot of people in so-called leadership positions in healthcare really go along to get along. Um, they're more interested in kind of survival, organizational perpetuation, self-perpetuation than they are in necessarily creating real change. And that's a hard thing to look at yourself in the mirror and realize about yourself. And I, it's a hard thing to say out loud about myself or other people. But at the end of the day, it's true. We sometimes aren't courageous where we ought to be courageous. Um, we aren't, you know, change-oriented where we need to be change-oriented. We are going along to get along. We're saying the thing that the person in front of us wants to hear instead of saying the thing that they need to hear. And so um, I, I think we have an obligation as leaders in healthcare, people who have influence over people who take care of people to actually be focused on more of the right things and fewer of the wrong things, which sometimes means creating conflict. It sometimes means, you know, addressing uncomfortable truths about ourselves and our organizations. And that's a, a different way of looking at it than I think most people think about their roles, which is 
oftentimes to just follow the leader, follow what's follow right. what what they're what they're supposed to follow, um, not recognizing that they're they're all they're you know they may or may not be participating in some ways, you know, in their own kind of moral injury because they they aren't necessarily doing the thing that they need to do to create the change that needs to be created. Yeah, I know. For me, recently, I had a weird, not a weird, but an experience where I realized I someone was like, well, that kind of makes you look weak. And I was like, well, I am weak here. Like this is beyond my capacity. And um, it was really um, eye-opening to see what happened when I asked people for help, like on our board and advisory board. And it, and it went really, really well, but it was also um, like intensely uncomfortable to just be like, well, this is just not something I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, so I wonder how health systems... How do you as a leader deal with that? Are there situations where you've had to be like, this is a no for me? <laughs> no, it's it's the kind of thing that causes me to lose sleep, you know, frankly, is, you know, making sure I'm being fair, make, fair to myself, fair to my organization, fair, fair to my leaders. Um, so that's, that's, that's the work that we have to do. Yeah, I'd love, um, we're running out of time, but I'd love to hear, a lot of people have questions about, about the payer space co-creating something with a healthcare delivery system. Sometimes it seems like two separate worlds, like they, they'll never path, cross paths, especially if you're in the healthcare system trying to find out if you're covered. But um, <laughs> how have you worked with systems or how have you brought those different people that you mentioned together? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with finding common pain points and, you know, common problem areas. And I think we're all struggling in a competitive environment for growth. We're all struggling to create differentiation that makes us more attractive to different populations. Something I'm actively exploring with health systems is, you know, taking a look at specific ethnic populations in Southern California, the Korean population, the Vietnamese population, who have long been underserved by traditional healthcare providers, and asking how do we create an end-to-end experience, both from a health plan as well as a healthcare delivery perspective, that creates you know meaningful change in value for patients. So it's 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 those types of things. Yeah. Well, thank you. I didn't know if you had anything else you wanted to share. I I love your work, and I'm really glad thank that you. you were able to come and and share some of that with our audience. Well, there's there's a lot of mutual admiration. I think your work on on burnout, as we talked about, is was kind of before its time. Uh, it's kind of everyone's favorite topic these days. And I I but I think it's you know, something, I think what, what is most important is, is that we create a set of problems that, you know, regardless of where you sit, what role you're in, whether you're in the health plan side, the nonprofit side, the for-profit side, you know, is, is important. We have a lot of those problems in healthcare, like that are, these are problems that are cross-cutting like burnout. So to go back to your original question, you know, how do you create change? It's really about, you know, figuring out what that burning issue is and then drawing the lines between that issue and the relevance. I think you've just done an amazing job of that. So grateful to be uh, on this journey with you. Thank you. I'm grateful too. And your work with health equity is, it's great. And it's a great example for, for me and for everybody. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.